one of our, us. May our hearts be ready, open, and may you change us today by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember when I was young watching the classic 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, you know, starring Charlton Heston as Moses. It's a classic. It covered much of Moses' life, really, from time when he was a baby in a basket to the burning bush to the Ten Plagues to the Red Sea and then finally Sinai. For 1950s technology, showing these events involved actually really impressive cinematography. It must have been 25 years ago that I watched it by now, but I still vividly remember many of the scenes, and they shape how I picture a lot of the biblical scenes taking place, for better or worse. It's interesting, though, that they didn't call the movie Moses. They didn't call it The Exodus, Gods and Kings, or even the Prince of Egypt. They called it the Ten Commandments. And they recognized that, that God delivering his law through Moses was really the pinnacle of his life. And it was. At that time, the law that God gave through Moses was the highest revelation God had ever given man. God was actually revealing himself through the words that he spoke so that his people could come to know him as their one and only God. We're now in a different situation in 2018 than the Israelites were 3,000 years ago. Jesus has since come and giving us greater revelation, altering the rest of history. But Jesus himself said that the law given back then has not been emptied of significance. It never will be. Therefore, it's good for us to, to learn what the law still means for us today. And what better place to start examining the law than the overview of it in the Ten Commandments? After all, that's where Moses started, and before that, where God himself began. Please open up, if you haven't already, to Deuteronomy chapter 4 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 4 will be at the very end of chapter 4 today, and then into chapter 5. Remember that the word Deuteronomy means second law. It's not actually a second separate law, but a second telling of the original law. Last week we saw Moses finish up his preamble, really, with some powerful words. If you start reading along with me in verse 36, this is what he said. Out of heaven... God let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Know therefore today... And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children. Again, therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and your children. And so, without further ado, here's the law. Jump down to verse 44. This is the law, or the Torah, you might have heard that word, that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out, of, came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Arior, who, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as 
Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan as far as the Sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. And that basically summarizes the first few chapters of, the, of what happened, what's led up to this point. And really it grounds the story in history and in geography. But we don't need to spend a lot of time there. Just notice again back in verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. There's the general, then comes the specific. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. This Christmas, if you have a Christmas dinner with your family or your friends, you or someone you love will spread out a feast of some kind before you. Right? Maybe you'll see turkey or ham there, potatoes of various kinds. You're going to have veggies or bread or cranberries, whatever. But in most cases, as you, all this food is set out before you for you to eat. But in most cases, it won't be crammed down your throat. Right? No one's going to force you to eat it. You have the option to not take part and not enjoy the blessings that are set before you. Moses was setting the law before the people of Israel here. He was not cramming it down their throats. Yes, there would be consequences if they didn't follow, but the ball was now in their court. And, and really, why would anyone not want to partake of the feast of blessings that God was offering them. Now, when we think about the law, our eyes tend to glaze over, and we think, this is going to be boring. <laughs> or at least it's going to be quite irrelevant to our lives. We may think of, of modern law, and think of, of law students up to their noses in thick books. <laughs> or we think of, of bar exams and lawyers, law enforcement, courts, judges. It's a fascinating world to some people. For others, it's as dry as burnt toast. On top of this, we're talking about a law that is decidedly not modern and not Canadian. So what possible significance can it hold for us modern Canadians? But when we imagine the law like this, when we imagine it as just a, a list of outdated rules, we miss the point. Because the law was much more than just a legal code of ethics. Not only was the law meant to reveal some of who God is to us, but it's also inextricably linked with a covenant with God which, as we'll see, means it's linked directly to God's love and his redemption of his people. And last I checked, love and redemption, they're pretty enduringly relevant, right? <laughs> Beautiful, necessary things to our lives. I'll give you the first point that we're going to see, and then we're going to hear Moses explain what I mean. What we're given in Scripture is not just law demands. They are covenant stipulations. I'm going to explain that. But covenant stipulations. And God's covenant stipulations are to be heard, learned, and heeded. God's covenant stipulations are to be heard, learned, and heeded. Verse 1 of chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Did you hear the three commands there? Each one would be useless without the others. Okay, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The message alliterates these. It says, listen to, learn, and live them. The word Moses used for hear actually really contains the ideas of learning and heeding within that one word. Some translate it as listen carefully or listen obediently. 
Did you know that the, the key body part to a healthy spirituality is not your eyes or your mouth or anything else but your ears? It's your ears. What matters most is whether or not you are hearing well and properly. Because if you're truly hearing God, the rest will follow naturally. Faith comes by hearing. Right? But there's a way to hear God speaking and not really hear Him. If my kids heard me calling for them, registered that my voice was speaking to them, but did nothing to respond to my voice, it would empty the hearing of all its meaning. Right? Now, what we need is a receptiveness, a certain receptiveness in our hearts as we approach God speaking to us, which we have in God's Word. If we come not expecting to hear anything for us, or we try to poke holes in the things we hear, or we try to rationalize it all the way, or we only listen half-heartedly, we fail to truly hear. We need to come expectantly, humbly, and ready to not only listen, but to respond to what he says. I like how Moses really personalized what he was about to say for his hearers when he's saying this. Remember that the law had originally been given 40 years prior to this at Mount Horeb. These that he's speaking to now were the children or the grandchildren of that generation who'd all died by now. But Moses takes the law and he says, this is a thing for today. Not just the past. You see that? Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. He does the same as he explains why it's so important that they obey. Verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. So even though these people were probably not even alive when the law was given, Moses basically transporting them to the past, putting them at the foot of Sinai, saying, God made a covenant with us, all of you. Now, you might as well have been there. The covenant is just as much with you. When verse 3 says, not with our fathers, it has the sense of not only with them, but also with you. The point was that this wasn't just something meant for a bunch of dead ancestors. The covenant was meant for them, for those who were alive. And really, any of God's covenants only have bearing on those who are alive now. But what's the big deal about this covenant anyway? Covenant's not a term we use really often these days. Well, one scholar says a covenant could be defined this way, as the formalization and regulation of a relationship that does not exist naturally. The formalization and regulation of a relationship that does not exist naturally. So kids, if you're born to a mom or a dad, that's a natural relationship. Okay, same with your biological siblings. You don't need a, a covenant with them because your relationship just is. It's natural. But let's say a couple wants to adopt a child that's not their own biological child. You need some kind of formalization of that relationship to make it official. Right? Also, no matter how much you may romantically love someone, you're not naturally married to them. Okay? At, the, at the wedding next weekend, our bride and groom will pledge themselves to one another. They will make solemn vows to God and to witnesses and to each other, which formalizes and defines the relationship they're forming together. 
Okay, they will publicly acknowledge that a new relationship has been formed at the same time as describing its characteristics, what it's going to look like, right? Like, we will love each other for better or for, for worse, in sickness or in health, for richer, for poorer, and so on. That's a covenant. A covenant is more than a contract. It's intensely relational. And a covenant's more than promises as well. It includes promises but it entails a whole lot more than that. In the ancient Near Eastern world of Moses' day, covenants were fairly common arrangements. They were often formed as treaties between two kings or two nations, one often more powerful than the other. They're bringing the treaty to another. What's interesting is that the most covenants generally follow the sim a similar structure or format. There's first, there's a, a preamble, an introduction, and then there were stipulations and rules of the agreement. And then there was an appeal to witnesses. And then it ended with blessings for following the covenant and curses or consequences for failing to follow it. We're actually going to see many of the same features throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Which means that Deuteronomy functioned as an expression of the covenant itself. It was like... This was a renewal of the marriage vows. It was meant to define and describe the new relationship that Israel had with Yahweh, their Lord. But here's the, the key thing to note about this covenant. God never needed to make it. He never needed to make it. Right? The, the fact that he did was pure, unfiltered grace. To his people. This is what made it so astonishing. What other God has done anything remotely like this? They were, the Israelites were the inferior party here, being approached by another. They were so inferior, inferior that they trembled and they refused to get too close to God. It's like, you know what, Moses, you do that for us. Okay? They, they needed Moses to act as an intermediary for them. Look in verse 4. It says, The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I, that's Moses, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. But here's this God coming near to them initiating the contact, the communication, the relationship, speaking to them face to face, graciously making a covenant with them. God had, had formed this new relationship with them out of love, and that's why they were called to obey. George Athis, a scholar, comments this way. He says, the, the commandments were fundamentally relational. They were not cold, hard rules to be followed simply because God commanded them. There was a rationale behind them. They were guidelines given in love and motivated by love for the development of a good and godly society in Israel. To translate this to New Covenant context... We are still people that God has covenanted to himself. It's different now, but we're covenanted to God. We're in a, in a new relationship with him, by grace, through faith. We have a, a glorious new mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And there are still covenant stipulations we need to hear, learn, and heed. Spend some time in the second halves of Galatians or Hebrews, and you'll see what I mean. Let me just give you one example, but if, if your small group's meeting this week, you're going to look at a lot more examples of this. Hebrews 10 says, Because we have a new, better covenant in Christ, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's a covenant stipulation. 
really, the, the, these are the types of, of, of covenant stipulations we need to pay closer attention to as believers because God has come near to us. So the law is more than just a set of laws. These are the foundation of a covenant. That's key. We can also see God's heart behind the law in the very first words of it. Okay, from verse 4 again. The Lord spoke with you face to face of the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the, good, the, the, word of the Lord. That starts in verse 6. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Wait. That's not a command or a rule or a stipulation. That's an identification. Exactly. God begins with self-disclosure, self-identification, self-revelation. Why? I like how Chris Wright puts it. It says, Here, as everywhere in the Hebrew Bible, ethics is not some abstract duty in relation to impersonal universal principles. Still less is it a moral philosophy. It is a matter of personal address by and personal response to a personal God. God's redemptive initiative of grace is presented as the foundation of the law. I, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. Israel's law was based on what God had already done to save them. It came after. The, the, the ten plagues came before the Ten Commandments. Okay, the, God split the sea before he spoke at Sinai. Salvation came before the law. So, obedience wasn't how they'd be saved. Obedience was their grateful response to being saved. And before giving any kind of laws, even the most important ones, God was like, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God your Savior. Above everything else, remember this. It's this amazing relationship that they had with God. And I wonder, do you have a relationship with this God? Is He your Lord and God and Savior? Has he brought you out, not out of physical slavery, but out of the slavery of sin? Hebrews 2, 14-15 says that, not, that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, it's Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. That's what happened at Christmas. Okay? Jesus partook of our flesh and blood in order that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, our sin, left on its own, enslaves us. It puts us under the devil's power, and it sets our course for hell. But if you come to see your own desperate need of a Savior... And you put your trust in that Savior, in Christ. He actually delivers you out. He brings you into a new, greater covenant with Himself. But how do we, how do we sign up for this covenant? It's through faith. Jesus already initiated it. He did all the work necessary to secure it for us. He sealed the covenant with his blood. His death set it all up for us. His resurrection ensures it for the rest of eternity. And so that means you can come today. I can come today. Abandoning your sin, slavery that once enslaved you, and asking him to save you. 
and he will. Once you have that relationship, that, that precious relationship with God, we're then called to live by his covenant. And this is what the Ten Commandments were meant to reveal to his people. Right? It says, they were thus the essential constitutional core of the covenant. Now, I'm going to fly over the Ten Commandments today at 30,000 feet. Okay, the, we'll go over each one, but briefly. I don't have time to do more. And actually, part of the reason I'm not going to go into super depth today is because I think we're going to get a solid overview of them over the next few months. See, and there's a little bit of structure here in Deuteronomy that I want to tell you about. In chapters 5 to 11, where we're starting out now, Moses describes God's covenant in a broad scope, what it looks like from the sky. But in chapters 12 to 26, he then gets into these nitty-gritty details, the, the narrow, specific laws. However, I'm fairly convinced that all these laws that he's going to bring are actually loosely arranged and structured based on the structure of the Ten Commandments. So as we go through, we're going to see how these laws re reflect the first commandment, and then a bunch of laws that reflect the second commandment, and then some that talk about the third, and so on. But as we read through the Ten Commandments today, just get that flyover, I'd encourage you to do your best to listen with fresh ears, to really hear them. Because they can be overly familiar to us, and then we totally miss how powerful they are. I'm going to summarize them these Ten Commandments, with two main observations. And it's fairly common practice to divide the Ten into these two main categories. The first four describing our relationship with God, and then the, set, the final six describing our relationship with one another. And so I suggest that the, the first main point of the Ten Commandments will tell us that God's covenant stipulations are to treat God as holy. This is what they're meant to do. Okay, God's covenant stipulations or laws are to treat God as holy. Number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Like we saw in chapter 4, he's the only God. There's none like him. Therefore, it's only logical that he should be the only one that we're worshiping. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we may immediately think that word before refers to priority or sequence. In other words, like, I should have no big snacks before dinner. So we think... Surely he doesn't mean that we can have other gods after him, right? Correct. The before there refers to location, like in front of me or before my face. George Athos elaborates, he says, in other words, there are to be no other gods in sight. <laughs> Yahweh will, tolerate, will not tolerate other gods or compete with them. For us today, this reminds us to take worship very, very seriously. We need to constantly make extra sure that our utmost affections are for the Lord. Not for any other, any other people, any position in our life, any other purposes we aim for. Our lives should be centered on Him. He must come first. Number two flows right out of the first. Verse 8. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this command outlawed both carved images of false gods as well as images meant to represent Yahweh. After all, the, the Lord was the, the living, dynamic, immortal, active, hearing, speaking God. Idols were lifeless, inanimate, impersonal, decaying, unhearing, unspeaking gods. So to worship idols was thus completely antithetical to everything God was. Idols are in essence a rival. A rival for your affections. A competitor standing opposed to God. And Moses explains further, you saw why this commandment was so crucial said, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a familiar warning slash promise, which tells us to both fear God and adore God. On the one hand, God's jealousy and judgment should deter us from idolatry. After all, God's visiting us to punish our sin can cause far-reaching consequences. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this doesn't mean that your kids are punished for your sins. But our sin certainly often bears consequences for other people in our lives, doesn't it? Disobedience hurts your whole community. Everyone around you. Side note there, did you notice that idolatry is equated with hating God? Interesting. Which I believe implies that, that true worship could be equated with loving God. God's like a a jealous spouse. He's in covenant with us, right? He's, he's our husband, spiritual husband, which should deter us from loving other things more. However, more than fear should deter us, his love is what should make us most faithful. You see that? Verse 10, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice, his judgment is shown to three or four generations, but his love is shown to thousands or a thousand generations. Okay, that's approximately the difference between 75 to 100 years and 25,000 years. And that's how much God's steadfast love outshines his judgment. God disciplines or punishes when necessary, but he's far more inclined to bless, to show his steadfast love. Number three, verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is still all about treating God as holy. Set apart. Other than us. High above. Perfect. Righteous. The name of the Lord really represented the Lord as a whole. It, was, it meant his entire person. But for Israel... It meant something even more special, since God had revealed his name to them. The, the fact that God had revealed Yahweh, his, his personal name, his covenant name, to them was this unimaginable gift. And therefore, his name was to be treated in a holy way. It was to be set apart for good use. 
to take it in vain was to, to misuse it. And if they did dishonor the name, there's a pretty scary warning there. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The message paraphrases that, well, God won't put up with the irreverent use of his name. Now, we do this commandment, I think, a disservice when we equate it only with swearing or cursing. I believe that, that using God or Jesus or Christ in a careless way or profane way, it's very wrong. And it would certainly amount to a violation of this commandment. However, there is so much more to this commandment than just that. When we identify ourselves on any official document or paper, or how do we do so? We sign our names, right? It's our signatures. Our, our, our names are significant. They're still seen as significant. As thus, signatures carry a lot of legal weight in this world. Your signature is like your own stamp of approval. It confirms your identity, your will to be done. Essentially, what we have is Israel was entrusted with God's signature. It's like, I'm giving you the ability to represent me on earth, to sign for me. And thus, they were called to use his name responsibly, to not misuse it or to misrepresent him. They might have used his name to, to bless, to curse, to, to prophesy, to issue decrees, to swear oaths, but the point was they weren't to use the power of God's name for personal or evil or frivolous purposes. Ask yourself, have you perhaps used God's name to further your own personal purposes in any way? Have you ever claimed to speak for him in his name? Be careful about things like that. Be careful about people who claim to do that. Have we invoked his name carelessly in prayers? Frivolously in songs? If we treat God's name carelessly, chances are we're treating him carelessly. Not as holy. Continue on to number four. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now the, the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that seems to be modified under Jesus' new covenant. Is we can see that we are commanded in various ways to follow the other nine. But I think it's true that the, the Sabbath does seem to be optional for New Covenant believers. However, I think that we ignore the principles behind Sabbath rest to our peril. Setting aside one day a week, treating it as holy, was meant to be a great blessing to God's people. It was a gift to them. Rest teaches us that we are not God. And thus, we are not limitless like God is. It shows us that the world goes on without us. Valuable lesson to learn. It shows that we have to trust Him as it does. 
Verse 15 shows that the Sabbath was also meant to remind people of their salvation. It's like, remember that you were saved from Egypt, therefore do this. Also, you can see that this Sabbath rest was meant to benefit every being in Israel. Even the lowest servant, even the foreigners, even the animals. So in this way, the Sabbath was a a guard against economic exploitation or oppression in the land. But, But given all this, it was even more so a guard against idolatry. Which we would do well to consider in our idolatrously workaholic society. There is always too much work. There will always be too much work. It, can, it is insatiable. It can consume us. But if you cannot set any time aside as holy unto God, what does that say about who your God is? The Sabbath was made for us as a gift from a loving God. So open up the gift. (laughs) Don't leave it wrapped under the tree. God's covenant people are to treat God as holy. That certainly has not changed at all. And, And only when our vertical relationship with God is correctly configured will our horizontal relationships with others be properly aligned and balanced. This is why all the the vertically oriented commands come first. You may have noticed something, though, about the the fourth commandment. It's the, the first one to be partially directed toward other people as well. Therefore, it acts kind of like a pivot point in the Ten Commandments. How we honor God ends up affecting how we honor other people. It shapes it. And what we're going to see is that God's covenant stipulations are to treat others with honor. God's covenant is meant to lead us to treat others with honor. Starting with our family members in number five. Verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Kids, and I'm including grown-up kids here. So everyone, this is not optional. As the Lord your God commanded you, we're to honor our parents. It's listening to them obeying them if we're under their roof, showing respect to them, and more. Even though we don't tend to like authority very much these days, it is still so necessary. And it really, it creates stable families, which helps create stable societies. Again, God is, you can see, primarily out to bless people, to help them flourish. If Israel was to have this this strong future in Canaan, their households had to be strong. Their families had to be strong. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, that this may be more of a proverbial promise than a guaranteed promise here and now. But the general principle is still true. Obedience and honor foster stability in life. Number six, verse 17, you shall not murder. Shall not murder. That's not just any killing, but specifically unlawful and unauthorized killing. All people are created in God's image, right? That's a foundational belief that we have. Everyone is created in God's image. And so to take the life of a fellow image bearer is not our prerogative. It's God's. It's like we take the place of God in our own lives when we do this. Of course, Jesus 
deepens this command and applies it to our angry hearts and insulting words. Which makes our, at least I haven't killed anyone's, ring rather hollow. Jesus does similarly with number seven. We're flying now, okay? And you shall not commit adultery. That refers to any kind of sexual relations with someone you're not married to. And if we sin sexually, even consensually, what that does, it does dishonor to someone else's soul. Dishonors them. And Jesus says, even if we do this in our hearts with lust, we're already guilty. can also dishonor someone by disregarding their rightful claims or ownership of things. That's number eight. And you shall not steal. It's obviously a sin against other people to steal from them. If you don't believe me, try it. See how they respond. But Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, reveals that if I steal, I actually profane the name of my God. Don't imagine that this is just trivial stuff now that we're getting to the bottom of the list. It's still about God's honor. Number 9 Verse 20, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I hope you'd all recognize how crucial truth is for any just society. Without truth, corruption runs rampant, power is abused, and stability is undermined. This command is actually more specific than just not lying or telling the truth. It's about telling the truth in court in the place where truth and falsehood matter most. But really, this command obviously wider than this. God's people should be known as a people of truth in everything. Trustworthy, reliable. Telling the truth is actually part of reflecting the image of Christ to our world. Don't believe me? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Finally, last but not least, number 10. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your Neighbors. Let me paraphrase this for our century. You shall not wish that you were married to someone else's hot husband or wife. You shall not enviously desire someone else's newer, nicer, bigger, smarter house than yours. You shall not wish someone else's job was yours, the place they work. You shall not envy someone else's resources or connections, even just their power tools or appliances. You know what? Just don't covet anything that belongs to someone else in your life. This climax of the commandments takes us right into our hearts, doesn't it? To selfish, envious desire. Coveting. We wonder, what's wrong with coveting if we don't actually follow through on the desire? Well, all sin is born in our hearts, isn't it? And also, our desires usually precede our actions. So, God, God wants to cut things off at the source. It's like, stop coveting and you stop so much more. James 4 talks about coveting actually leading to the breaking of a lot of other commandments. Paul twice equates covetousness with straight-up idolatry. Which brings the commandments full circle. Break the tenth. Break the first and second. Break them all. 
Going through this list of commandments is sobering in a couple different ways. First of all, it's plain to see that modern society has basically abandoned every single one of them. We live in a world that is full of self-worship, of idolatries of all kinds, constant misuse of God's name, total negligence of rest, rebellion to authority, abortion, euthanasia, one-night stands, friends with benefits, rampant porn use, trampling of property rights, pervasive dishonesty, and consumeristic covetousness out the wazoo. Really, it's little wonder that the rejection of number one has led to the decay of numbers two through ten. God designed the world to work in a certain way, under certain parameters and principles. So we desperately need God in our world, perhaps more than ever before. The second way this list is sobering, though, is in the dark reality of our own hearts. As we consider this this list of commandments seriously and honestly, we're, we're likely to have broken every single one of them ourselves. Now, just because we've failed doesn't mean we should give up on following them. This should prompt us to examine our hearts and adjust the way we're living where necessary. Where are you following well right now? Where are you not? What needs to change? I think this really can all be part of being a careful Christian. But far more than just motivating our obedience, this should move us towards Jesus. First Timothy 1.8, this is after Christ, says, Now we know that the law is good, it's still good, if one uses it lawfully. And then it goes on to say how the law was laid down for lawbreakers, like us. The law still exists to expose how sinful we are. And then point us to the Savior to the one who obeyed all of this perfectly and yet laid down his life for us. His life can now be your life. His righteousness, yours. So does it move you toward Jesus? Are you trusting him? Because there is nothing that we need more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today as a sinful, broken, rebellious people. We have fallen so short of your standard. And so today, we run to your mercies that are new. We run to your grace, to your kindness, to your love for us that is faithful to a thousand generations. We also come as people who are forgiven by the name of Christ. Lord, help us to see that, to know who we are in your eyes now, and help us to live like that. It's only by your grace we can do so. So we trust your spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen.